You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. When those men rode down to the fording place last night, I thought us done for. Even you must realize how close they came, their smell, the song of their bridles, the whites of their horses' eyes. True to form, blind though you are, and with that shot still irretrievable in your thigh, you made to stand and meet them. Perhaps I should have let you. It might have averted what happened tonight, and the girl would be unharmed. But how could I have known? I was unready, disbelieving of our fate, and in the end could only watch them cross and ride up the wash away from us in the moonlight. Taya Albrecht is the author of The Tiger's Wife. Her new novel is Inland. Thank you for joining me, Taya. Thanks for having me, Rick. You know, what I found most fascinating about this novel was that it's so, it's written in a, in a pretty different style from, from the, the Tiger's Wife. And it, the plot is different, it's setting is different, and even the prose and pacing, uh, everything is different, yet underneath I could still feel the same prose and invention engines just chugging away with this, with, you have a really interesting perspective on the world that comes through in this kind of prose as well as it does in, in the, the Tiger's Wife. Talk about the decision to change your style so radically <laughs> um i'm not sure that it was a decision of any kind thank you for <laughs> thank you for noticing um i uh i struggled with it for a really long time because uh for about the first year or so maybe even two after the tiger's wife came out i would try to write and force my sentences to be more tiger's wife like <laughs> Um, and they resisted me. They wouldn't. They wouldn't do it, uh, which was odd and sort of frightening. Um, and I realized that what was happening, and I eventually made peace with the fact that what was happening was that um, I was beginning to use verbs in a really different way. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas previously, I think my adjectives were the key component of the sentence. I would always structure my sentences around the adjective being the primary musculature. Uh-huh. Now the verbs were taking more control. Um, and I don't really know where that came from, but it, it felt really... Um, was it like the body snatchers taking yeah, over? <laughs> yeah, it really was. Um, my my concerns when I when I edited was always, well, this verb isn't strong enough, and this isn't you know this isn't quite what you're trying to say. And I think it somehow sort of harkens back to the fact that my first language is in English. Mm-hmm. Um, I spoke. Uh, I grew up speaking what was then called Serbo-Croatian, um, but is is now the the three different uh, languages: Serbian, Bosnian, and and, and Croatian, and and. Um, there's a very different sentence structure there and uh, a real sort of uh, liberal use of verbs um, and a bastardization of adjectives to make them into verbs. Um, the verb rules the sentence. And I think, uh, I think it sort of made its way into my writing finally in this way, but it took a long time to accept it and then find the right vehicle for it. Now, this... Is, has a very different setting, although it has, interestingly, I think, very much a similar sensibility. But it has a very different setting. What made you choose this setting? It's 
exactly a Western, except it turns every Western expectation upside down and sideways. Thank you so much. <laughs> um, I... I was surprised to write a an, an anti-Western Western, a Western anti-Western. Um, I um, or to deal with the with the West at all. Um, you know, I'm I'm not from this country. I don't have any roots in the West. But I started spending a lot of time there some years ago, and after a, a lifetime, a childhood certainly, and, and then a lifetime of moving around. Um, growing up on the move internationally, Belgrade, Limassol, Cairo, um, and then being all over the place here in America, it was the first time that I connected to place with um, homecoming, this idea of homecoming at the forefront. And it was very weird and very powerful, and I longed to go back whenever I left it. You know, I would find myself planning when I could get back out to Wyoming, to Arizona. Um, and the strangeness of that feeling, particularly as it didn't fit in with any of my own history, uh, really affected me because I felt it must sit at the head of the table of the, our impulse to tell Westerns the way we do. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? To, to, to mythologize what we mythologize in Westerns and this idea of sort of self-invention and... Um, the heroism of the individual above all else. Um, and so I knew that it would have to come into play somehow. And so I started researching the West uh, and wrote <laughs> and wrote a novel that, that didn't really go anywhere. Um, and I was continuing to research when I came across the story of the Red Ghost in a podcast that I really, really love called Stuff You Missed in History Class. And they were talking about this Arizona campfire tale um, concerning two women on a homestead who are stalked and attacked by a mysterious creature, a mysterious quadruped that's enormous and shaggy and red and it's called the Red Ghost. Um, and they have a sort of tragically violent encounter with it. And um, then the hosts went on to... Uh, associate that mythology with the real life story of the Camel Corps, uh, which was when, which I, I hadn't heard of before, and, and was when um, the United States military brought camels over from the Ottoman Empire to serve as pack animals in the American Southwest. Uh, and I just couldn't believe that I hadn't heard the story before at all, in any way, even though I'd been doing research, you know, for years by this point and had spent a lot of time. And, um, I started to dig into the story and, you know, there were these people who had come over, these young men who had come over, the camel drivers um, from a part of the world with which I have a lot of emotional and cultural affinity and um, I started thinking about them, I started thinking about these two women on the homestead and what it must have been like for them to encounter this animal they couldn't explain. Um, and the meeting of the true history and the campfire lore was something that really, really affected me. And I knew that I was writing toward that. And I ended up writing the book. Wow. Well, <laughs> you know, uh, the, the way that this unfolds is so interesting because you're, we're introduced to, to Lori, and, and his worldview is so hermetic and actually, it's really sealed. He knows his world in a very certain way, which is a world that 
is completely foreign to us in yeah. pretty much every aspect. So talk about creating and preserving that kind of hermetic seal. It's, in a sense, it reminds me a bit of a work of science fiction or fantasy because there there are elements of the fantastic just in his beliefs, but they're so everyday that to him, these things are not fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. And he sort of, he starts life um, as he comes over here with his father. His father brings him over from Mostar. Um, and which was my grandmother's birthplace too. Um, and you know, they'd make a go of it in New York. It doesn't really work out. He ends up being a grave robber. And at some point, um, quite possibly because of his brief stint in this profession, he's, he begins being able to see the dead. Um, Lurie sees dead people. Um, (laughs) and, um, it is really matter of fact for him. Um, and yet I think his entire life he spends trying to figure out what the rules are for why he can communicate with certain dead people and, and why he can't communicate with others, um, why it's him they see, um, why they can't. He has a big realization sort of toward the middle of the book where he realizes that they can't really see each other. Um, so much of his life, I think, revolves around his solitude and his reasons for wanting to be alone and sort of preserve that worldview um, and the isolation of, of certain things that, that make him who he is versus his desire to connect with people um, and to to make a life. So there's the sort of the running portion of his life, which is the impulse to flee, his ability to see dead people, um, this marshal who's on his tail his whole lifetime and whom he sort of occasionally perceives as more of a threat than than he actually is you know he has this 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 mythical relationship with the marshal um and uh and so what comes to represent home for him is this camel that he's riding burke his his lifelong companion um on the other hand there's his impulse to connect with the cameleers to connect with um, people who are living in actual communities. And it almost never, never works out, this life of stasis. Um, so I think it's, it's actually his fleeing that makes him the way he is. You know, he carries this worldview with him in a kind of perfectly preserved state. Um, yeah, well, it's so interesting to, to read it because it's, it is so sealed. And, you know, actually I hadn't twigged to the... Uh, the running aspect but that makes perfect sense he is never at home in any one place he's always he's always looking for the next place or and but he he never seems to have a destination right which is a really i again boy i just took to that (laughs) (laughs) he 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 never has a destination he just has a, a um will to to go yeah now a lot of his portion of the book is told in the first person Mm -hmm. and he is talking to somebody so tell us who he's talking to sure um so the first chapter um that actually starts the book which is called the missouri um he's speaking to an unnamed uh you know unembodied (laughs) disembodied um second person um, he addresses someone as you throughout. Um, you do get the sense that, that they've been together for a long time. And it's only in the second chapter that uh, it is revealed um, that whom he's speaking to is, is actually Burke, his, his camel, um, that he 
acquired and then later stole um, when he was part of the Camel Corps. You know, I think this is, this becomes such a powerful relationship, and Burke is a really interesting character, <laughs> even though he's not exactly a character. So talk about that, creating a recipient for the um, conversations that, that um, Laurie has, you know, essentially with himself, sort of, but also it's so become so poignant as I read it. Anybody who's ever had a dog or talked to their dog or their snake, maybe, I don't know who that would sure. be. <laughs> but uh, uh, we'll, we'll just find out how, feel that real tug of the odd but super strong love between a person and, and an animal, a human and an animal. It just seems like they are the equivalent of a human in, in so many ways. Yeah, for certain. And, and, and I think that it's, it's a very, very powerful relationship that we've, we've built as, as, as a species. You know, mm-hmm. our, our animal companions come to embody so much of our own, you know, we project so many of our own desires and fears and, and anxieties onto our animals and, and, um, they become, I think, uh, an embodiment of what we imagine to be our purest selves. You know what I mean? It's this pure love. And um, because they're animals, they, they can't think or do any wrong. And so, you know, we sort of, we sully them by our very presence at the same time we value them most when they exhibit uh, anthropomorphic traits, right? Um, but I think um, with Burke and Lurie, so much of it is about this notion of because we follow them for for just about 40 years and um so much of their relationship is about the passage of time and the two of them having borne witness i think in lurie's words to, to all these miraculous changes in um the you know, this, in, the, in the building of the nation, um, in the destruction of other nations, um, in uh, the advent of the railroad, or actually not the advent, but the, the arrival of the railroad. And, and um, to him, to, to, to Lurie, I guess because he's been there for such a long time, it all feels, the changes are happening, but it all feels the same. You know, the feel of it is this, desperate wandering feeling and um i think the reason that he feels so bonded to to burke is that the two of them have borne witness to all these changes together um and only they know it you know now you have another character nora Mm -hmm. she also has an imagined conversation (laughs) she she also has a an imagined conversational uh, accomplice. Mm -hmm. So, and I think you do such a wonderful job with Nora and her family at turning every perspective of the Western, just, wow, you just (laughs) mess with it endlessly. But it seems so realistic. It seems like, you know, this is the, a big portion of the West might have been, must have been this way. Um, yeah, I think, uh, well, I mean, I, I did a tremendous amount of research and, 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 and read a lot of homesteading diaries, like homesteading memoirs, journals, letters, um, to get the feel for sort of daily life and, and, and the small petty trials of, of, of existence, you know, um, and also things that, that were super, super high stakes, like the moving of a county seat, which could 
destroy the lives of everybody who was in the former county seat very, very easily, um, and which is sort of in, in the process of happening when we when we meet Nora and, and Emmett and, and their sons. Um, I, I think um, what really struck me about Nora was her solitude, and I think that was her solitude and isolation, and that also struck me about Lurie, the same thing sort of, I wanted to examine... I mean, not consciously. I ended up examining and then later realized that it was because I had wanted to um, examine the, the, the solitude and isolation of characters who um, would have a unique perspective on something that to them was every day, but that to an audience would be, you know, completely wow. out of this world right um and um nora speaks to the imagined ghost of her dead daughter evelyn who died as a baby and whom she has imagined growing up in this house with um with herself and her husband and 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 her three boys um and i wanted her to have this system of isolation that was for her alone because everybody else in that household um, eventually is going to leave. You know, the boys are growing up with this notion of departure. Emmett has already lived his life and made his decisions um, and, you know, gotten to, to have this grand adventure of a life that, that she sort of feels very resentful of because she didn't really get to have it. She's isolated in the house. Um, and her, she has a family within a family, and it's this ghost of, of, of her daughter who becomes of paramount importance to her um, and therefore makes the house of paramount importance, too. You know, uh, Emmett is such an interesting character. <laughs> He's a, sort of a scholar and largely a weasel. <laughs> <laughs> the scholar, the, the, the typical, the, ah, the archetype, the, scholar, the scholarly weasel. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> More of the Weasley Scar. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the Weasley Scar. <laughs> so, uh, and, and I think you, again, as we're reading this as a Western, you know, mm -hmm. typically the kind of males we see uh, in Westerns, you know, they're outdoors or, you know, doing stuff. And and it, it's, like, it's as if the only evidence you'd ever seen of 20th century civilization were chase cop dramas and then all of a sudden you saw Kramer versus Kramer and you go who is that guy <laughs> amazing <laughs> oh my gosh so talk about creating Emmett you must see I think you were having a lot of fun with him I was I was and I think that what was particularly fun about it too was the fact that um Nora's sections are all written in a very close third person mm -hmm. um so close that sometimes people People have said to me, "Oh, and, and Nora, you know, in the first person," and it's like, "No, no, there's a there's a gap there." Um, but the whole her sections are very, very um, um, colored by her perspective, um, and she she's not what you would call um, an extremely objective person. You know, she's very sure of herself, and she's mm -hmm. very sure of her opinion. Um, she's been married to Emmett for 20 years, um, and when we encounter them, they're having a bit of a standoff <laughs> about this this problem of, of the county seat moving and, and the town. Um, and so I think that 
there's a lot going on with this marriage. It was one that um, of, of two people who came together basically for romantic reasons, but then then sort of um, got embroiled in the uh, heady business of um, pioneering in Arizona territory in 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 the 1870s. And um, one person had one experience and the other had a different one. And so I think that the way we encounter Emmett is through this constant cycle of her nostalgia for some earlier time and her frustration for the way things have gone and her uh, ability to objectively state, you know, to objectively recognize his incompetence and recklessness as a person, but also in many ways his sort of frustrating kindness. You know, she's frustrated by his good qualities, but sort of reassured by his bad ones um, because they're so predictable to her. Um, and so, yeah, he was very, very fun to write because I, my, my sympathies were torn when it came to Emmett, and I, I, I hope that the readers will be too. Uh, yes. <laughs> okay, thank you. So uh, he, he's a newspaper man. Mm-hmm. Not the most heroic newspaper man that ever walked the pages of a Western novel. No, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> so talk about his newspaper business, and it seems so, uh, I guess, like free-floating. We think of the news today, it's every bit of news we receive is completely interconnected mm-hmm. globally at mm-hmm. this point. And, and then he's just, it's, it's so bizarre that there's some guy out there just like with a printing press um, making up stories. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right in the news, you know. Um, so, well, it was interesting to, to, to research the role of newspapers um, in the development of the West and then also in the mythologization of the West. Because on the one hand, one of the reasons why why the West was so talked up and so hyped up in 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 culture was because the you know news of what happened in the West and what was happening in the West and the sort of um, heroic veil of it um, would come back to the coasts. Uh, always, of course, with the agenda of urging people to to you know pick up their handcarts and their oxen and their oxen carts, ox carts, um, and, and, you know, head out west and get yourself your acreage and, and um, prove up, you know. Um, on the other hand, uh, people who lived in these communities were entirely dependent on their newspapers for any word of, of the outside world. Um, and so the newspaper man was a very central figure in town because by virtue of owning the printing press, he would, you know, if you had a booming town, he would print up um you know, uh, uh, newsletters for various organizations, you know, you would, you, you would receive that kind of business, um, but then also you would write the news. And the local news would um, often be um, clearly delineated uh, in terms of agenda and political affiliation. Um, and uh, then there would also sort of be, um, uh, you know, f- fluff in, in there, like who's in town and where are they staying and who's visiting? Um, often in these very long, unattributed articles. But Emmett, I think, sort of fancies himself a real newspaper man, you know. Um, and um, he takes fancies this response. Fancies himself as the important... <laughs> he, Emmett really fancies himself. End of sentence. <laughs> um, and I think that his newspaper has clearly done some good, but but then there's, you know, we, we get glimpses into... Um, aspects of his newspaper business that have not been 
necessarily very fair or even handed. For instance, the doctor comes over and it becomes clear from his conversation with Nora that there's been multiple attempts on the part of the Spanish-speaking population of Amargo to get the Spanish language included into the newspaper and that Emmett has sort of wholesale rejected this idea. You know, the newspapers are meant to be written in English, um, according to him, um, which is a, you know, a frustration. Um, on the other hand, um, by pure accident, his newspaper has become the vehicle for this conflict between the townspeople of Amargo and the townspeople of Ash River, um, who have a competing newspaper, um, which is owned by a cattle baron who wants to wants to have the county seat changed over. So um, Emmett's lack of conviction in certain avenues is not... Um, the most beneficial thing considering his platform. <laughs> well, I think you do a great job of creating a, a hyper-realistic West because it's it, once very weird and kind of foreign seeming to us, but also it's like most lives, it's dominated by mundane activities. Yeah. Where's the water, etc. Mm-hmm. And there, there's a drought here. And I, you do a great job of like unearthing those kind of archetypes in the West that still swim beneath our civilization <laughs> here in the 21st century, those big fish, and uh, the cattle baron is certainly one of those uh, big fish that we still have those swimming beneath us even as we speak. For sure, for sure. <laughs> they're very big, <laughs> and, they're, and they're swimming very destructively. They yeah. <laughs> leave a wide, wide awake in their, in their, in their path, yeah. Well, you know, I think what what I, what I like about that is that even though this is novel is really firmly set in its time, in its places, of its place, you do a good job of evoking stuff that's happening right here and now, and you are allowing the the people who are reading it, who live right here and now, to say, "Oh, wow, that that hasn't changed a lot, yeah. has it?" Yeah. And I think it was a surprising thing to, to thank you for saying that. Um, you know, I, the first draft of the of the novel was finished, I think, around September or October of 2016, um, and it already had all these elements in it. Mm-hmm. And imagine my shock <laughs> um, for the for the you know two years that I was editing it afterwards. Um, there was something very, not something. It was deeply disheartening to see so many things that that I had found out about the past just cycling back into prominence in the present. Um, and I guess to some degree, you know, it, it, it's heartening to think, oh, well, we cycled out of it before as a society, you know, there are the, the um, madness takes hold of societies and, and rips them apart, but then they you know, get back, you know, they, 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 they reconfigure and, and, you know, are, are better for it. And they go on to sort of, they, they lean toward the better angels of their nature and we progress as a species, but then so far, so far. Um, but then, but then we always inevitably cycle back into, into, into madness again. And it's, um, it's a, it's a overall disheartening thing to realize. (laughs) You know, I, I thought you did a really good job of leaving large swaths of things sort of unsaid. You, you would just show it, and I'm 
thinking now in particular of the way you painted the picture of the frontier you know Mm -hmm. the the indians are still indian nations are still out there they're still whole and they're still pretty aggressive Mm -hmm. and pretty scary to the people who are not heavily armed Mm -hmm. and i think so talk about the process of winnowing i imagine must have gone on um in terms of like only having the portions of the contact you know with the indians and that kind of stuff that was you know, relevant to this kind of tale, which is very, essentially what happened is very, very low-key, aside yeah. from... Um, yeah, no, I, 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 um, it was, it was a struggle because, um, on, on several levels. <laughs> you must have been, had a, a st- zillions of pages of research saying, write about me, write about me. I did, <laughs> and, and, and I think, you know, um, and knowing what I know about Westerns and and what Westerns have done, you know, the classic Westerns and what they've done um, to frame the mythology of nation building that was taking place at the time in the particular way it's been framed. Um, I was very nervous to not um, center Native stories more, for instance. Mm-hmm. However, um, the structure of this book was set by history. I was interested in these two narratives and the way they came together. And so, as you say, it became necessary to um, to do the research, but then to have, uh, but then to sort of have the, I'm, this is such a cliche, but to have the sort of iceberg situation, you know, where there's all this, where there's 90% of the mass is underneath the surface mm-hmm. and it informs the 10% that's above, but you only see the 10% that's that's sticking up out of the water. Um, I wanted to write particularly with, 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 in relation to, um, the relationship between settlers and Native Americans. Um, I knew that I, I, I wasn't going to be able to write, um, a, a point of view character who was Native American. There are some stories that, um, exist about the camel's presence, um, in, native uh, culture the, the interactions of the camels and 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 um native people those stories are very difficult to get hold of and they're very very private stories and i didn't want to come barging in and take one of those stories and co-opt it into this novel mm-hmm. um but i did want to so f- failing that and knowing that my characters couldn't have 21st century politics in 1893 I wanted to show not only how larger politics played into the framing of narratives about um, native people and settlers but also how personal bigotry works Um, even in people who you know think themselves as progressive Nora thinks of herself as very progressive but actually so much of so much of her character, everything about her, rests on a particular decision that she made as a younger woman based on her uh, prejudices mm-hmm. and the way she feels about that relationship between um, the people who were here first and, and, and herself. Um, so I wanted it to inform everything really, really heavily um, as I wanted sort of everything to inform, you know, the whole, the whole thing very heavily, all the things that I researched, as you said, like, you know, um, this, this chorus of, of different things to, 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 to write about. Um, 
but with with native narratives in particular i wanted to i wanted not to dwell on government culpability but personal culpability because it was such a personal story for these two characters well you know the my to me it felt like the understanding that i got as a kid when i was you know very young i come home from school my elementary school and watched the Vietnam War mm-hmm. on TV mm-hmm. and it was you know some guys running around the field and I didn't you know I was a kid I didn't know much then and and mm-hmm. that's kind of the way it feels like this like you're on the edge of this huge conflict mm-hmm. but the conflict itself on the ground is somewhat small and personalized mm-hmm. but you don't get to see you just get to see glimpses of the personal and you don't really even get too much of a sense you get a sense of the big picture Mm -hmm. but not much and that's what makes it so big and kind of scary and interesting i think that the idea of like leaving a lot of stuff out and but having written with that stuff in your in the back of your mind Mm -hmm. gives you that sense of as you said like the iceberg yeah yeah i hope I, i i really hope so Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for thank you for saying that. I hope so. I, I it, it it was on my mind a lot. So. Now, uh, Nora, Nora has some some kids, mm-hmm. uh, three of her own, and, and, and an extra. So talk, <laughs> an extra. <laughs> so talk talk about the the kids who are are wonderful characters. I I just really really love them, especially the the, the youngest who was the one who sees the red ghost. That's right. Um, she has three sons, Toby, Dolan, and Rob, um, in ascending order of age. Toby's very little. Um, and when we start the book, he's um, he's sort of this haunted child all the time. She, um, <laughs> she he, he follows her around a lot. He's around the homestead. His brothers are considerably older. Um, uh, Dolan is sort of a, a scholarly blowhard. Uh, he's the middle son, uh, and he is in love with their second cousin, Josie, who is, who's come to live with them, and she's a medium, or a, allegedly a medium, which all of which drives Nora absolutely bat- bonkers, you know. Um, and then there's Rob, and he's sort of the, the, the sullen... Um, eldest teenager who's kind of quiet and 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 um has really bought wholesale into into his cowboy persona um and he's hoping to leave home and and go on one of the great cattle trails um you know go to go to texas and 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 take cattle up to montana or go up to montana and work there um and uh i think that uh she loves her boys she has a lot of it. She insists throughout the book that they're, you know, good, upstanding young men. Um, but one of the reasons that the whole plot has kicked off is because they've had, they've all had a huge fight the the, the night before about uh, an issue on which they differ uh, in perspective. Uh, and the only person who's left at home, the only people who are left at home with her when the book starts are Toby, who is, you know, completely terrified of, of this beast whose tracks he's found and whose shadow he's seen, or he, so he says. Um, Josie, who uh, Nora feels is sort of bewitching Toby with all her occult nonsense. Um, and Nora's mother-in-law, Mrs. Harriet, who is wheelchair-bound um, and, uh, and lost, the abil- lost the ability to speak. 
uh, and move as a result of, of, a, of a recent stroke, even though all the children keep insisting to Nora that they have seen her in various parts of the house where she where she had clearly wheeled herself, that she can actually move. Nora's never seen her do it, so she doesn't believe it. Um, so I think that, that much of her relationship with her sons is framed in the context of this frustration. She's being edged out by their age, by their bonds with one another, um, and, and most frustratingly of all, by frustratingly of all, by Josie's bond with Toby uh, and, in various other ways, the other sons, too. You know, uh, Josie is such an interesting character, and you do a, you have so much fun with her. <laughs> you really put her through the ringer. You put her through the ringer, yeah. And I love all that. You must have had a lot of fun researching spiritualism in, yeah. in the 19th century, which is such an interesting... Uh, because it was on the edge of science, mm-hmm. um, it, it the perception of spiritualism was that it was absolutely logical yeah and so talk talk about that creation because i love that kind of uh, per- those perceptions yeah it was it was um as i was doing the research it it it, uh, it dawned on me that uh, that that that's how yeah like it, it, it became clear from the research that that's how people were beginning to think about it you know there were all these it was a time of tremendous technological change and um the way communication had changed once and now again was really really significant you know like they'd had the telegraph they'd had the uh, they'd had the the, the transatlantic uh, uh uh cable as well which had taken a lot of effort to, to lay and 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 had failed several times and, and now you were able to sort of have a thought in newfoundland and have it you know land in great britain um and so i think that on the one hand people must have felt really optimistic about these you know electricity and 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 the telephone was starting and then all these sort of um invisible energies invisible energies no really you know it's just like how do you you know how do you hear somebody's voice a, a, a thousand miles away well waves are traveling through the air you know and 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 um how does that work? How does a lay person process? I can't even process it. You know what I mean? I literally said everything I know about the way sound waves work. <laughs> I took physics. Um, and um, so I think that on the one hand, that kind of optimism necessarily goes hand in hand with a tremendous amount of vulnerability. And um, and I think that Josie herself, Josie's grown up in a, in a household of mesmerists and uh, sort of various seers and she's been orphaned and sort of by 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 accident has lost all her money and she sort of wound up here in in the middle of nowhere arizona with her with her cousin emmett um, and his wife who who lo- who despises her on you know a cellular level um and um not without reason not without reason but but i think that josie really believes you know that, that that she has these abilities and 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 Josie to some degree is vulnerable to her own to her own deceptions whether she's you know exercising deceptions uh, or not she's certainly vulnerable to the belief that she is and so other people in town become vulnerable to it too and and Nora of course is extremely resistant Emmett's fascinated by it mm-hmm. um, and this is you know one of the ways in which he's he's playing his big newspaper man role he he sort of attends Josie's séances and and tries to figure out is it real is it not you know and he can't quite he, he can't quite 
decide what side he comes down on. Nora has decided the minute she laid eyes on the girl, right? And and uh, it's a no, despite the fact that she's carrying on this decades-long conversation with her own, own dead, dead child. child. <laughs> yeah, uh, But she insists, you know, it's a, it's a figment of her imagination. She knows that her daughter Evelyn isn't isn't a real ghost, or so she claims. Um, but when that moment of vulnerability between her and Josie happens, um, when Nora sort of has a crisis of faith about her daughter, um, it is scientifically based. It's based on on these issues of invisible energies and, and the fact that suddenly there were technologies that, that dealt with... Uh, distributing and harnessing invisible energy and people often wondered you know is is reaching into the afterlife just a matter of technology are we two steps away from achieving that well i i think too that you talked about technology and i and there's a lot of actually there is quite a bit of new and to the people of that time, wondrous technology being just laid out, and the, the telegraph here, as you say, and then the telephone, and of course, who gets the first telephone? The richest guy. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> there. But uh, I think that that, you know, again, that was another um, aspect of this book where even though it's very, very firmly and convincingly, you know, in this time, we experience the same kind of thing in our time, and I think that those kind of parallels, you know, bubbling up underneath the the surface like that, it must have been kind of fun for you to write that. It was very fun. It was also very, it was very surprising. You know, I, I, because when you're writing, you're in the in the middle of, you're in the thick of it, you know, and you don't really. Um, you're talking to ghosts. Right, you're talking to ghosts. It's true all the time. And you and you don't really see the, 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 the forest for the trees at all. You know, you're just sort of blundering around from scene to scene. You're trying to make the connections. And then um, on the occasions when I would sort of raise my head and realize this is not so dissimilar, whether it was about the technology or about the politics or about the use of newspapers uh, 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 with respect to political agenda or, uh, you know... Um, narratives of othering um it was really like it it, it really sh- it really shook me <laughs> many times i'm sorry I'm, i laugh when i'm nervous <laughs> well you know the uh, uh the other you had talked about the conflict with the with the county seats mm-hmm. and there's one just absolutely wonderful part where nora writes a, a letter and, <laughs> and i just thought you know you ha- you do such a good job of investing us in these characters and setting them up, you know, and, and Emmett, you know, in his, in his Weasley mode, and, and and Nora in her kind of like, you know, don't mess with me mode. Yeah, <laughs> I thought the the payoff for readers of reading her letter that she's written, you just think, wow, cool. <laughs> Thank you. So talk about, you know, just like... <laughs> and then she burns it. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, well, what interests me too is that the uh, um, the way you use these things to, to give us the joy of plotting at a different level than, you know, of, than that of a gunfight, a cattle drive, or, you know, the, you know... Bad guys assaulting, coming to the town, but it's still just as evolving and, and joyous for us as readers to experience. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, I wanted, I wanted to, uh, um, 
I had a conversation with my students some years ago um, about writing historical fiction, and I was I was beginning to write this novel, and I was I was struggling with how to, in particular, how to make that the urgency of of a county seat moving. Um, really, really resonate with it with the twenty first century reader, right? Because it mm-hmm. doesn't. I mean, you can sort of get those echoes in, but but not. But time has passed, and 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 the way our. The way our I don't want to use the word empathy because it's such a it's such a loaded word, but it's true. The way our empathy, our our ability to to place ourselves in a context, in a situation, not our, not our own, um, and relate to others who are in those situations, works is, is very limited, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so we were talking, a, 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 um, and my students were like, what's, what's the problem? And I said, essentially, it's how do I convince you that it makes sense that horse theft is a hanging crime, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, because it was. Because if you steal somebody's horse in the 1850s, you are leaving that it is attempted murder. You are leaving them out in wherever with absolutely no way to get to the next source of water, the next source of food. You're leaving them exposed to elements and wild animals, you know, like, like all this stuff. It's carjacking. It's, yeah, it's carjacking. Um, except not in a city. It's carjacking, you know, out in the country. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and, and so trying to... Um, we recognize on some theoretical level that the cattle drive, that the gunfight, and that the arrival of the bad guys in town are, are high stakes. Mm-hmm. But what I really wanted and what I really, really felt sort of nerding out on this research was, oh, my God, imagine somebody came in and was like, we're taking your county seat. Like, you, you, every, you know, everything is going. And, um, and, I, and because Nora is so wrapped up in, like, the minutia of her life, I, I really wanted to write into her panic about these small, seemingly trivial uh, uh, um, conflicts that were going to just, take her life from her, take everything from her. Um, and so hopefully, uh, I, had, I had a lot of fun with it, and I, I hope it, I'm, I'm grateful to you for, for, for thinking that it works. That's, that's marvelous. That's a marvelous thing to hear. Thank you very much. Now, we have these two separate narratives that have, as far as we can tell, very little, uh, through, for most of the book, very little connection. Mm-hmm. Did you know the ending of this book when you started it? I did. Okay. The, the ending of this book is is why I wrote the book in the first place. Okay. Because uh, that podcast that I was talking about, mm-hmm. um, the meeting that takes place at the end of this book is the thing that starts the podcast. And it moved me so deeply. Like the questions that flowed out of that image for me um, led to the writing of this book because they, they moved me so deeply. I wanted so much to know. I'm trying not to give too much away here. I wanted so much to know how this meeting happened and what it meant for the people who had it, what it could possibly mean, mm-hmm. um, and why it was why this why the meeting of such stories is relevant and why we're moved by the meetings of such stories, these impossible realities of history that, that, um, because it's 
it's really it really happened mm-hmm. you know that it, it, it is campfire lore but 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 it's been established by by um sort of various scholars more that you know it more or less must have been true um what people saw and um i so what i knew when i wrote this book was who the characters were going to when i started writing this book i knew that there had to be a, a, a narrative one day long uh, in the life of this homesteading woman, that there had to be a narrative 40 years long in the life of, of um, this other character, um, and that the end of the book was going to be this meeting. But what the emotional condition of, of, of everybody as they arrive was and what it all meant I didn't know any of that and and there was a great freedom in having those restrictions you know because every time I got lost or sort of sidetracked it would be but like what you're going toward is this ending well that's the 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 magic of of creativity is not in its limitlessness but rather in the limits that are imposed upon it that you as the creator have to work around and figure out how to make it work once you've like trapped yourself. And as long as it's limitless, you can't trap yourself. And At you're all. going yeah. to get a 5,000-page book about nothing. Yeah. <laughs> what's, the, uh, what's, the, what's the line from, uh, from Wonder Boy's The Genealogy of the Horses? Um, yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> now... Yeah. Uh, and, and two, I think this takes us to the, so this book is a story, and, but in large part what this book is about is the power of story in our lives, the stories we tell ourselves to get by, whether it's the terrorist story you're telling yourself to get from the beginning of this day to the end of this day, yeah. or the story you're telling yourself to getting from the beginning of your like adult life to the end of your adult life mm-hmm. and how those stories can you know nest it it's a it's a nested uh series of stories russian dolls of stories which is i think what we have in in your your novel thank you so much thank you that means so much to me the new novel by Taya obrock is inland thank you for joining me Taya. thank you so much You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.